Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Thanks for joining us today. When we launched the podcast just about a year ago, we knew that we wanted to talk a lot about tribalism. And if you've listened in, you know that's a theme that really runs through a lot of our episodes, a lot of our interviews. But early on in the podcast, we actually spent a lot of time directly speaking to the issue of tribalism. And since then, we haven't touched on it again. And so I thought it would be fun for Keith and I to get together and do a little pulse check, check in on how our nation, our churches are doing when it comes to tribalism, a little state of the tribal union. Let me guess. We're we're healthier now. We've gotten better, right? It's like unicorns and rainbows. Well, you know, here's the sad thing. If tribalism gets worse, I guess it's actually better for us, but I do, <laughs> as a people running the tribalism podcast, but I do want to see it get better and it most certainly has not gotten any better. But before we hop in, we have some news that we want to share with you, which I'm sure some of you have already heard if you follow us on Twitter or you're engaged with some of the stuff we do, but Keith and I wrote a book. Yeah, we did. It was a pretty amazing process. You told me it was going to be much easier than it was. <laughs> It about killed me. But for some reason, it was so much fun. I almost wanted to do another one. But the book comes out October 4th, and it's called Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to Jesus, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. No. <laughs> you can't even get You're our right. book title right. Oh, hang on a second. It's, it's Pledging Allegiance to the lamb, not there the donkey or the elephant. <laughs> but you get the point. Jesus is the lamb. Now, in a lot of ways, obviously, that's not going to surprise anyone. But the reason why we wrote this book is because, I mean, Keith, you in particular, you planted the crossing, the church we're both a part of 20, over 20 years ago now. And since then, it's become a politically diverse church. Now, that's a function of our geography on some level. We live in a blue dot within a red state, which means that at our church, we have a lot of people from a lot of different political perspectives worshiping alongside one another. And that's always been challenging on some level. And yet for the last 20 some odd years, we've kind of managed to thread that needle. And so we wanted to write a book that really came out of our experience as pastors leading a politically diverse church and arguing for why this is so important in our present moment. You mentioned when the team planted the church back in 2000, we didn't even think in terms of a church that wasn't politically diverse. I don't even know if that was on anyone's radar. You just started a church and you kind of assumed it was going to be politically diverse. But that's an assumption you can't make. In fact, a politically diverse church is becoming rarer and rarer to find as churches kind of coalesce, not so much around theological issues, but around political and cultural issues. So the fracturing that's been happening in the country has affected the church, and people are starting to go to churches that have their same cultural and political positions. So that years ago when we started the church, people would come and they'd ask questions about maybe what's your view of baptism or what's your view? 
view of spiritual gifts or other theological topics, but hardly anybody asks us about our views on those issues, at least not in compared to how many people want to know where we stand on race or Black Lives Matter or Trump or any of the other thousand cultural issues that are being discussed in our community. And I do want to state how funny that is, because I remember when I first started going to the crossing, the main conversations that people wanted to have, the controversies, if you will, were God's sovereignty, right? infant baptism. Those were the things that people wanted to debate over and have a conversation over. And, and now I, I would, would almost... love to have that debate now. Like, could someone come and talk to me about Arminianism and Calvinism and those kinds of things? Let's because go back. My arguments probably need to be sharpened on those. It's been so long since anyone wanted to talk about that. <laughs> but now they want to talk about things about whether it's really okay to seek racial reconciliation or if you're perverting the gospel somehow, if you think that God's design is to bring different races together under the Lordship of Christ. Yeah, I think that's a great example. Everything that we're experiencing, Keith and I, I don't think are by nature nostalgic people, so we're not longing for a lost past. What we are, I think, seeing and identifying is a simple fact. Americans, by and large, are becoming increasingly partisan, and the church really is no exception to that. Ryan Burge, who we'll have on the podcast, and he's a leading sociologist of American religion and politics. He has a great Twitter follow, by the way, because he has the best graphs. If you like graphs, you're not as into graphs as I am. I'm not a visual person. Mm, I'm very visual. But he released some graphs, again, that I found really fascinating, where he was looking at various Christian traditions, as well as atheists and agnostic people. And he showed that across the board, across the board, every group of Americans, doesn't matter what their religious association is, is becoming increasingly partisan. And the steepest rises, by the way, are happening within our own group, which would be largely white evangelicals. White evangelicals, the number of highly partisan people has now finally, and this is since 2012, so I mean, we're talking recent history here, has now finally gotten significantly above those who see themselves as middle of the road. And that takes us back to the book, because one of the things that we wanted to do is show people that this tribalism that is affecting the whole country, but specifically the church, is making their life miserable. And we wanted to explain to them also, what is it about us and the way we think? What is it about our culture? What is the way about the systems that we've set up that are leading to the tribalism? And then we want to give them a vision for how do you get out of it? Like, does Jesus have an answer to tribalism? Because a lot of people are diagnosing it. But we don't need more people to tell us there's a problem. What we need now is somebody who can maybe show us a way out, show us a better way. I think that's exactly right. And the truth is there have been a boatload of academic books on tribalism that have come out in the last 10 years. And I won't claim that we've read all of them, but we've picked up a good number of them along the way. And while we found those books helpful, we realized this is not going to reach the everyday person because it's written in academic language. And that was one of our goals here was to write a book that was written to everyday Christians that an everyday Christian could understand and appreciate and personally benefit from. Walk out and say, hey, I've got some real next steps that I can take in my community, in my family, in my friendships that are going to help help me not just personally detribalize, but help the people around me detribalize. That was our vision is not just to be negative, to define the problem, but like you just said, to provide a solution that comes from the Bible, that comes from Jesus. Yeah, I had a really encouraging conversation on another podcast recently in which they were talking to us about the book. And one of the hosts said that she picked up the book to read it because she felt like that was kind of her duty to have a good interview. And then she <laughs> found out that she really liked it. She was afraid that, you know, is this going to be something that really feels irrelevant or 
too pointy head academic. And she said, no, it's just got lots of good stories in it. And that's what we do in the book is we share our stories. And I don't mean just your and my stories. I mean, the stories of the church and the community that we're leading, because I think it's not that there's anything really necessarily special about us. It's just that we've been on the cutting edge of trying to lead a politically diverse church in a very fractured moment and having to deal with all the fallout. And together as a community, we've learned a lot that we think is really interesting and might provide some lessons for other people who are going through the same thing. Yeah. And I think when you say on the cutting edge, what you don't mean is, you know, we figured out a million things that other people haven't (laughs) figured out. Just made the mistakes quicker (laughs) than everybody else. I think because we are still in one of those rare geographies where there are cross-cutting political relationships, we've had to face some of these challenges before other churches had to face them. And as a result, we have a lot of stories. Like you said, not our stories. I mean, in many ways, this is the story of our church. And we have amazing people in our church who have done some amazing things that we're just excited to share with you and share with other Christians. I've also been really encouraged just in general by the reception of the book. One of the hard things about writing a book is that you're supposed to go out and, you know, get endorsements and ask people, would it's you read this? It's a very insecure feeling, <laughs> it really right? Is. Like, oh, would, would you read this and tell me if you like it? Do you like me? It like took me back to second grade where you're passing notes. Do you like me? And so it's been encouraging to hear the reception. People like Colin Hansen at TGC, Amy Bird, who's been on the podcast, friend of the podcast, Scott Saul's another friend, Mike Cosper from the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, Ryan Burge, who I just mentioned, Kyle Eidelman. And if you look at that list, by the way, you'll already begin to notice we have people who are reading this book from across the political, cultural spectrum, really even across some theological spectrums and saying, hey, there's really good stuff for every church, no matter whether you're evangelical or not, no matter whether you're primarily white or primarily black or primarily Korean or whatever else, that this has some, I hope, good wisdom for you in your context. So maybe it's helpful to make sure you know that the book isn't the same as the podcast where we talk to all kinds of people who are involved in the day-to-day current events. It's maybe the backstory of why we even started the podcast. And the book comes out on October 4th. And if you would like to pre-order it, that would be a huge help to us and kind of help us start to get the message out about it. Just the way Amazon works, if we get a lot of pre-orders, then they start putting it in front of other people and people who wouldn't have necessarily ever thought of the book or heard about it. They start to be exposed to it and maybe they'd buy it because it really isn't about a book or even a podcast. It's about something that needs to happen within our country, something that needs to happen within the church. It's more like a mission or a movement to put Jesus above our political tribal loyalties. So if you do us that big favor, we'd appreciate it. Pre-order the book, share about it on social media, and I hope share about it in a way that gives people a vision for we can do better as a church. We can change the conversation inside of the church, and that might change the conversation and the culture. And I want to be really clear here because (laughs) I can be a cynic, and so when I hear someone say, hey, go buy my book, my first thought is, oh, great, you want to go and make some money? Keith and I, because we just wanted to be above board and because we really believe in this, we aren't taking a lick of money from any of this. The advances, the royal royalties, all of that are going back into ministry. We won't see a penny of it because that's not our goal. We aren't here to make money. We haven't made a single dollar on this podcast in general. We're here because we care about the church and we hope that's what the book can do, that the book can change what's happening inside of our churches. So let's get back to where you started off, Patrick. <laughs> and the infomercial. <laughs> well, in the infomercial. Has tribalism gotten any better in the last year or has it gotten worse?
Well, I think the answer to that question, has tribalism gotten better or worse in the last year, is patently obvious. It's painfully obvious. So let's just stop the podcast. We can be done. (laughs) It has gotten much, much worse. I mean, you're seeing people now talk more and more about civil war as if it were- It was trending on Twitter recently. option. So David French, a guy who's going to be on the podcast here in a few weeks, he wrote a book maybe a couple years ago called Divided We Fall. And in it, he told how he could kind of foresee that maybe the country would literally split apart around issues of gun violence and abortion. And back when it was written, people go, well, that seems a little extreme, David. <laughs> that means it seems a little wild over the top. Well, I don't know if it seems that extreme anymore with the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the violent language around that and the recent mass shootings and the language around that. You can see how his scenario could actually play out. In 2021, the University of Virginia released a poll saying that 53% of Trump voters and 41% of Biden voters, that of course in the 2020 election, believe America is so fractured that they favor states seceding from the union. And at the beginning of this year, one in three voters said that violence could be justified. That's wild. Yeah. So the language around civil war and violence is becoming even more intense. That something is terribly wrong, not just with our politics, but with the soul of the country. Absolutely. And it seems more and more that tribalism is the lens through which we see virtually everything. I felt this palpably just in the last few days. So we're recording this just days after the FBI went in and searched Donald Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago. And watching the response to this has been just a crystallized example of how we see things through our tribal lenses. And I want to talk about why in just a second. But first, I want to make a comparison. Keith, when you got ordained, did you have to do any psych evaluations? Uh, no, I, I not that, that explains I re- a lot. <laughs> not that I recall. You had to do psych evaluation when the church ordained you and allowed uh-huh. you to be a pastor. Yeah, so this is part of our denominational procedures for ordination. Now. Oh, I was ordained in a different denomination. Maybe that explains mm, it. Yeah, see, the PCA doesn't give psych evaluations to people, no, which also explains a lot. They know we're all crazy. <laughs> no, it all serious. This, this is, I think, becoming a more standardized thing in a lot of denominations. We have to go take a psyche field. Now, to be clear, this is not trying to figure out do you have depression or anxiety or more, you know, kind of everyday mental health issues. This is trying to figure out are you a psychopath? <laughs> Like, are you a danger to people? Are you a serious danger? And so I had to do this. I had to drive to a different city because we don't have anybody in our city, I guess, who can do these things. And I get into this guy's, this psychiatrist's office, and he's meeting with another person, but comes out and he says, hey, while I'm meeting with him, there's something I want you to start by doing. And he takes me into this little room with like this 1990s style computer. Like the screen was not a flat screen. We're talking like old school computer. And he says, hey, I'm going to show you some images on the screen or the screen will click through. And when you see the image, what I want you to do is write out a story of what's happening inside of the image. I'm like, okay, this is... This is weird. I don't I don't know what this is. And so he sets up the first image and leaves. And the image is this woman looking out a window kind of pensively. There's obviously something on her mind and she's hiding one of her hands behind her back. Hmm. And so in the moment, I'm immediately realizing what's happening, that my story isn't about what's happening in the picture. What I write is actually saying something about me. You know, now I'm a creative writer. So, you know, I mean, I could get real creative. You know, maybe she's hiding a weapon or letter from a spurned lover. Who knows what else? But I'm like, I've got to keep this as 
with milk toast as possible. But the idea is that if you see her as maybe getting ready to do something violent or mean, I don't then know. that says something about you because she could have a bouquet of flowers uh-huh. getting ready to present it to a friend for a birthday party. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's the ability to read her facial expression because the pictures just get weirder and weirder. The next one that pops up on the screen is this little kid running through a playground who is clearly terrified. I mean, just looks like you know a monster must be chasing him. So again, I don't know what it's testing. The next one was also weird. It was this dude crawling on all fours through a living room who is clearly <laughs> disturbed. And I have to write these stories. You know, I obviously want to be ordained. This is the future I want. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh my gosh, my future lies on whether or not I don't sound crazy on these tests. Now, I found out after the fact, this is called a thematic apperception test. How many people pass or fail this? Do you have any idea? I have zero idea. I guess I passed it. <laughs> you don't get your results. You don't. I think you just get told if you fail. And it's kind of like a Rorschach test. People will be more familiar with that. That's where they show you an ink blot and they ask you, what do you see? And of course, there's nothing in the ink blot. It's all about what do you see in the ink blot. Now, this is a more focused version of that that's giving people an image and saying, what do you see? How do you respond? And again, it says far more about me as the viewer than it does about the image that I'm viewing. That's the whole point. And in a very similar way, this continues to happen in our political discourse. We keep seeing things. And what we see says a lot more about us than it does about the event itself. So let's get back to Trump, Mar-a-Lago, and the FBI. So the whole Mar-a-Lago thing, we're not trying to say, hey, that was right or wrong, or here's where it's going to lead. Our point is that no one has any idea, and yet everyone is really sure that they know. And so our response to Mar-a-Lago is the Rorschach test. It is the inkblot. There's no way for you to know if that was justified or unjustified. And yet, go to social media or listen to people talk and what you find is that people are very angry or very excited. So to make the point, let me just state what we know at this point, right? Because when this comes out, who knows, maybe there'll be new information out and everybody's going to say this is outdated again. This is just days after the event that we are recording. But here's what we know. We know that about 30 FBI agents raided Mar-a-Lago and we know from some unnamed sources that maybe it has something to do with classified documents. But everybody who's kind of associated with the DAJ or has worked in the FBI or our attorneys, they're all looking at this saying something's not adding up here. There's something that we don't know. And that makes perfect sense for several reasons. First of all, the DOJ is not in the habit of releasing information about ongoing investigations. This is their standard procedure. And so while we have people out there saying, you guys need to release, you need to say what happened, that makes no sense. That's not what they normally well, do. Well, remember with James Comey. He broke that He rule. broke that with Hillary Clinton uh, when he came out and said that they were looking into her missing email on her home server, and everybody was all upset about that. That was the aberration. That was breaking with DOJ policy. By not saying anything, they're following the longstanding tradition of you keep quiet about these things. Now, they did have a search warrant that they got from a judge and Mm -hmm. had to go through a very rigorous process to get that search warrant. And the Trump people, I don't know whether him or his staff, they have a copy of that search warrant. It's required for them to leave it. Now, the search warrant won't tell everything the Justice Department is thinking, but it does tell them a lot of what he's thinking. (laughs) It paints a picture. Now, the DOJ, again, is not going to release that warrant. That's not normal procedure. Now, Donald Trump, of course, could release it, and that creates its own set of questions of why isn't he releasing it? He should release it, whatever else. And of course, we have no idea. But here's the truth. No one 
No one knows exactly why Mar-a-Lago was raided. Not even the people who have the warrants have all the reasons for why it was raided. No one knows. No one has absolutely any idea. The second thing that I think is really relevant here is we have to realize that for this thing to go forward, there's kind of like two keys on a nuclear code here. One is Merrick Garland, who was appointed by Joe Biden. He's the attorney general. And the other is Chris Ray, who's the head of the FBI. And he was appointed... By, by Donald, Donald Trump. Trump. Yes. <laughs> okay. So the two guys with the keys to say, do we go forward? They both turned the key. Now, that doesn't mean anything. These aren't technically political figures. And so it doesn't mean anything that they turned it. I'm just saying that's what we know. And then this takes us to the response. Yeah. So on the left, you're having people who are really excited, like, oh, finally, Donald Trump is going to be held accountable for all his misdeeds and all of his crimes. People on the right, on the other hand, are saying, look, this is an abuse of power. You're going after a political opponent. Political persecution. Yeah, the person who was the former president that you obviously disliked and who's the leading contender right now, at least, for the Republican nomination in 2024. So this is the abuse of political power. Yeah. And here's the truth. The FBI has made enough mistakes that everybody knows about that you should not presume their competence. Well, exactly. People have said that this had to go through a rigorous process and it wasn't just one person out kind of being the wild cowboy doing it. Which is true. Agreed. Fair enough. But our institutions, not just the FBI, our collective institutions, the CDC, I mean, you could go on, have made enough mistakes lately that just to be told there's a lot of people in the room when the decision was made, it doesn't give me that much comfort. But on the flip side of things, the FBI also has a huge amount of successes. They've done a lot of good, right things. And because of that, we can't presume incompetence on the other side. Yeah, there's so much that we would like to know. But what this is going to require us to do is what our country is really, really bad at. And that is wait, (laughs) wait, don't come to any quick judgments. Don't say anything. Just let it play out. And later on, we'll have enough information that we can decide if this was appropriate because Donald Trump, like everyone else, needs to be held accountable to the law or inappropriate because this was the abuse of political power and holding him to a standard that we don't hold anyone else to. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go back to the basics here. This is a thematic apperception test. At this point, because we know so little, your response says far less about the event because we know virtually nothing about the event. It says far less about the event than it does about yourself. So our whole country is taking a national psych evaluation, right? (laughs) So we're all in the room with you, but the image on the screen is the Mar-a-Lago search. Yeah, it's 30 FBI guys and their windbreakers going in to Trump's residence. And how you respond, again, it says more about you. And this is what tribalism does to us. Tell a story. Tell a story about what you (laughs) see and see what story you come up with. Yeah, and you can write that story in the Washington Post or you can write in the New York Post. And I can already guess what you're going to say based on Vacation or your tribal loyalty. So again, I mean, we're right in the middle of how tribalism is shaping the discourse nationally and preventing us from thinking clearly and honestly about the actual facts that are on the ground. Okay, Keith, let's do another example. We're trying to do a State of the Union, so I want to pull some things that are within the last year, but maybe not quite as relevant in the news cycle. Let's talk for a second about the Florida Parental Rights and Education Act. I've never heard of that. <laughs> what is the Florida Parental Rights and Education yeah, well, Act? Well, you haven't heard of it. This is obscure. You've pulled something <laughs> out that we don't know anything about. You haven't heard of it because you haven't heard of it by that name. Oh. It's gone by two other names. Oh. On the left, it's been called the Don't Say Gay Law. Oh, I heard of that. 
guys. And on the right, it's called the anti-grooming law. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, we're joking. We know what this is about. But what you quickly see is that each side is using language in damaging, destructive ways. You could even say they're lying about what this bill is to frame it in a way to say we're the good people and you are the bad people. And there's a refusal to actually deal with the substance of the legislation. Now, you can deal with the substance and come to different conclusions, but what's not helpful is when you label other people as groomers or as people that won't allow you to even say the word gay. That's not what it's about. So let's just go to the facts on the ground. What is this law actually about? Well, it mostly consists of requirements for, quote, notifying a parent about his or her student's mental, emotional, or physical health or well-being. With the caveat, quote, school personnel may withhold such information from a parent if a reasonably prudent person would believe that disclosure would result in abuse, abandonment, or neglect. And this law also, by the way, talks about classroom instruction. But how? Let's see what it actually says. Quote, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through third grade or in a manner that is not appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. So let's go to the left saying, don't say gay. Well, that's a lie. (laughs) The law is not a don't say gay law. As it very clearly states, the schools are allowed to do sexual education and it's supposed to be in line with people's developmental stage. But the primary focus here is on kindergarten through third graders. Now, you have to say that the way the left has framed this issue, don't say gay, is really powerful. I mean, I guess I could have said, like, don't say gay in certain circumstances. That would have been the don't say gay in certain circumstances law. (laughs) What they're trying to do is say, look, here are these crazy fundamentalists who won't even let people speak, that won't let people tell their story, won't let people be honest about who they are. You can't even say the word gay. They are so extreme. And it kind of brings back this vision of kind of white supremacy and the shutting down of people who disagree and differ from you by labeling them. So the point you're making here is that this isn't the first time. The left has a habit, for example, of calling Trump supporters racist or white supremacist. And that's really strong and I would say evil, in many cases, dishonest name calling. But it's meant to shut down the conversation. But the right here is no better. In fact, it seems like the right's finally taking their plays from the left's playbook. By calling it the anti-grooming law, what they are implying is that teachers Teachers are grooming children for sexual abuse. Well, people on the right said, okay, look, if you're going to call us racist every time we try to have a hard conversation, then we're going to return the favor. And so now we're going to start calling you groomers. Now, grooming is a really horrible thing. It is about intentionally developing a relationship and manipulating young people in order to exploit them sexually. So it's a powerfully loaded word, just like racist is. And what they're doing is saying, okay, it's tit for tat. You do this, I'll do that. And what we see is an escalating of tension, but what we don't see is a willingness to work together to try to come up with something that a pluralistic culture can agree on. Yeah, it's name calling. And one of my big concerns about the grooming thing is that, believe it or not, there are actual anti-grooming bills that are running through all sorts of states right now. This is not talking about what's discussed in the classroom. These are laws that are meant to defend children from actual activities that groom them for the sake of sexual assault and sexual abuse. And when you start using language from that field for this new field, you're going to make it more difficult for those laws to pass in those states. So there are some actual practical ramifications that come with this name calling. 
So I think if you went and asked parents in Florida, where are you on this bill? And you actually read them the bill, what you read earlier about classroom instruction, about gender identity and sexual orientation not occurring in kindergarten through third grade. I think most parents, in fact, polls show within the state and this bill passed with Democratic and Republican support. I think most people would say, yeah, I'm for that. Now, I've heard critics of it who say, well, it's kind of vague. What is instruction? Can a gay teacher who is married to a person of the same sex, can they talk about their weekend and what they did with their spouse? Well, that seems to me to be gray. I'm not sure how that is going to be adjudicated. So it'd be better if this law were clearer. But Unclear laws? Who's heard of that? (laughs) But I also think that it has kind of broad support generally. It does. And what's our bigger point here? Our nation is taking a thematic apperception test. We're taking a national psyche eval, and it's not going good. The way we are responding to news, to laws, is being entirely shaded by our partisan allegiances. So let's move to another topic that's been in the news a lot lately, and that is the language about abortion. And we talked about this in a previous episode, yeah, but did. one of the things that opponents of Roe versus Wade being overturned said is that this is going to affect women with ectopic pregnancies and not allow them to get the health care they need and therefore, and therefore endanger their lives. But as we said before, there is no state law about the limiting of abortion that is saying that ectopic pregnancies cannot be medically addressed and appropriately addressed by their doctor. And to say that these state laws are putting women with ectopic pregnancies at risk is just untrue. It's totally untrue. And what's fascinating is that when you start getting into the details, the left's language is changing. We're seeing how tribalism is shaping the language. So let me give you an example. Planned Parenthood's website, before Roe versus Wade was overturned, this is what it said. Treating, it's a quote, treating an ectopic pregnancy isn't the same thing as an abortion. After Roe was overturned, that got scrubbed from the website. They entirely removed it. And then they equivocated. They actually made it sound as though, you know what, ectopic pregnancies might be a form of abortion and we need to be careful about these laws because it's going to put women at risk. So they did an about face and the about face was an about face towards dishonesty. They said something that was a lie, something that was untrue. Yeah, we tell even more stories in the book about how tribalism is making you anxious. Sure, absolutely. You're wondering, am I going to be next, uh, you know, being hunted down by the people, the language police? It's making us more inauthentic in our intellectual pursuits. We're having to conform our views to what our tribes say instead of pursuing truth. And when you get to places as a nation where you can't say what's true, you can't enter into a dialogue trying to figure out the truth and what's best, but instead you have to shape your beliefs according to your tribes, well, that's a pretty dangerous place to be. I think it's very dangerous. Let's keep going forward because this last year, something new, or maybe not entirely new, but it struck me as being new this year, is happening. Tribalism is metastasizing. So what we've talked about for the most part here thus far has been red versus blue tribalism. That's something we're all pretty familiar with. But what we're beginning to see is more red versus more extreme red and more blue versus extreme blue. So we're seeing tribalism forming within these parties themselves. So the Democrats have been taking advantage of the 
civil war, to go back to that language, that's happening within the Republican Party. Specifically within the Republican Party, you've got a pro-Trump wing and kind of a never-Trump wing. And I mean, a lot of people aren't even quite never-Trumpers. It's like pro-Trump versus milquetoast Trump. <laughs> okay, that, that's fair. You've got you know two opposite ends of the pole and lots of people yeah. in between those. And so what the Democrats have been doing in the primaries is they've been pouring money into the pro-Trump wing, trying to get the Republican primary voters who are big fans of Trump to come out, vote and support that candidate with the hope that that candidate will win the Republican primary and therefore be easier to defeat by their Democratic opponent in the general election. It's a crazy strategy. It's Machiavellian. I mean, it's wild. Well, what happens is you find yourself, if you're the Democratic Party, you find yourself saying, look, these Trump supporters are a threat to democracy. Simultaneously, we are going to fund their campaigns against their more reasonable uh, Republican opponents. That might work as a strategy because the red wave that had been predicted in the fall of 2022 is now being downgraded because some of the candidates that the Democrats have supported that have won are less likely to win the general election. But you know what? Some of them are going to win. Yes. Some of them are going to win and our politics will get even crazier. At least that's according to the way the Democrats think about it. So they're just in this incredibly unethical position of saying democracy is at risk, but we are going to support the very people that we say you should be scared of. To me, it's absolutely wild. There are a large number of examples of this happening across the country, but perhaps the highest profile one was Peter Meyer from Michigan. Now, he was one of 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump, so did not ingratiate himself to the pro-Trump crowd. And his district was like Biden plus eight, I think. So it was a Democratic leaning district. And so naturally, you can imagine that he'd have a good chance maybe of winning as the incumbent having impeached Trump. But here's where things get wild. He has a pro-Trump opponent named John Gibbs. Trump invites him to come speak at a rally. Gibbs says that it's, quote, simply mathematically impossible that Trump lost the election. He gets on stage. He talks about we need to be more ferocious. We've got to have some sharp teeth when we go. And he starts roaring on stage. I mean, that's the guy who is running against Pete Meyer. What's wild? The DCC spent a half million dollars promoting Gibbs. That is way, 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 way more than he had in his war chest. And it's way, way, way more than he spent on himself. And of course, Gibbs goes on to beat Meyer in the primary. So I just want to make sure we get it here is that Pete Meyer was a very moderate Republican. You had to be if you're going to be a Republican who won in a district that went Biden plus eight. He's a guy who took a courageous, now you might think foolish, but courageous nonetheless less, vote to vote for impeachment. He was the kind of Republican that Democrats should want to work with because he was, according to the Democratic mind, a reasonable Republican. But instead of letting that race play out and maybe having a reasonable Republican that they could develop policy with, they instead put their money behind a radical, someone they think is crazy. Well, what if this guy wins? You know, I mean, <laughs> That's exactly. Right. Again, you can have your opinion of whether you think he should or shouldn't win, and you know, if the Trump supporters should or shouldn't. Well, we'll win. find out. They're playing with fire, and they're going to get burned. This is happening issue. across countless elections, and it's actually already happened that people have won. So here's the deal: Democrats aren't alone in doing this. Republicans are already doing this to themselves. We're already seeing, and we already saw in Republican primaries, more extreme right-wing pro-Trump candidates dethrone incumbents. One example was Rusty. Bowers in Arizona. Here's a guy, you don't probably know his name, but he served in state legislature for 30 years. 
He was the Speaker of the House. And in the midst of the election scandal, Rudy Giuliani calls him and tells him that he needs to discard the Arizona election results. He, because he's a conscientious person who does the right thing, refused to bow down to one of Trump's minions. And this is what Rusty Bowers said. He said to Rudy Giuliani, quote, you are asking me to do something that is counter to my oath when I swore to the Constitution to uphold it. I'm not going to put my state through that without sufficient proof. And that's going to be good enough with me. No, sir. And for that stand he took, this former Speaker of the House, a Republican Speaker of the House, somebody who had a lot of support, he was censured by the Republican Party of Arizona. And then he got primaried, another more conservative Republican running against him. And he was accused, Rusty Bowers, again, 30 years serving in the Arizona House, he was accused of condoning pedophilia, of election fraud, of teaching children to hate America. Now, you would think other Republicans would kind of rally around him and say, no, this is our friend. This is the person who served in our state for years and years. But of course, they don't do that. And Rusty Bowers loses to his opponent in the primary by a pretty considerable margin. Yeah, he lost by a large, large margin. And so what's the point we're making here? Tribalism is metastasizing. It's no longer just red versus blue. It's blue versus blue and red versus red. And who's winning in a lot of these cases? It's the more extreme voices that are taking the day, which, of course, is going to make the broader red versus blue tribalism much, much, much worse. Okay, one last example of something that's happening Picking right Picking these cases of tribalism is like trying to pick your favorite kid. I mean, <laughs> how do you decide? There's so many of them. There are so many of them, and some of them are really serious. This is an inter-squad debate among Democrats, people who consider themselves on the left. And the issue is monkeypox, this disease that's starting to spread quite a bit. Uh, it hasn't caused any deaths in the United States that I'm aware of, but it is long-lasting and it is miserably painful by all accounts. So in late May, it became apparent that monkeypox was beginning to spread rapidly, specifically through gay communities. Not because the virus is particular to gay people, but because gay men have more sex with gay men, and so it spreads more rapidly within those gay communities. Well, right. Like, Viruses don't know if you're black or white or gay or straight yes. or a man or woman or whatever, right? Which viruses, everybody knows, by the way. Right, viruses just spread. And from what I've read about this, which is a fair amount, the virus can spread in several different ways that deal with close physical contact, usually for a sustained period of time. But 99, according to the CDC, 99% of the spread of monkeypox in the United States is through men having sex with men. 99%. That's pretty high. So you would think your public health officials would want people to know that so that people would know who's at risk and who's not at risk, who needs to be taking precautions and who doesn't really need to worry about this. Well, there was an Oregon public health official that went on the NPR affiliate in Oregon, specifically in Portland, Oregon. And the radio host asked this question, said, what are the best ways for people to reduce their risk of contracting the virus? <laughs> now, that's a pretty good question. Everybody's out there wondering, what do I need to do to you know, make sure that I don't contract this virus? So here's the chance for this Oregon public health official to be really clear is he? No, no, not at all. Because here's what he doesn't want to say for political and ideological reasons. He doesn't want to say the word sex. 
So he goes through a long convoluted answer. Maybe we can link to it in the show notes, link to the whole interview, because it is amazing that he's able to go through this and not speak clearly. It's like a woke word salad where you don't even quite understand what he's saying because he's very determined that he's not going to do anything that mentions sex. And so what we're seeing is that you've got more moderate Democrats who are saying this is being passed primarily through sex. We need to talk about sex. And, with and men having sex with men. And this is happening 99% within the gay community, which we supposedly care about and are for. We need to say that. And you've got the more extreme end saying, no, we cannot say that. Our message to the general public needs to just be, well, what you just said, some sort of word salad that makes no sense because we're afraid, I guess, that if we say something, this is going to cause persecution within the gay community. Well, even more infuriating is that in this interview, again on Oregon Public Radio, the health official essentially says there's two messages we have, one for the general public and one for gay men. And that's not the public health official's job. The public health official is supposed to speak clearly so that everybody knows that I need to take these precautions or I don't need to worry about it. And instead of doing that, they're causing fear among people who don't need to be afraid and they're not giving the proper warnings to those who need to heed those. That's exactly right. This is causing conflict within the left about how you're supposed to respond to it. And I just want to say this because I don't know that everybody realizes it. This is actually a very easy disease to stop. We have a vaccine for it. We had a vaccine for it before there was an outbreak. We know exactly how to stop it. This is not complicated. This is not COVID. This is nothing like that. And yet the left has proven because of its own internecine battles between one another that they will do nothing to stop it. And it has been spreading and getting significantly, significantly, significantly worse every single month since May. So the people who told you that you had to mask up all the time, the people who told you that your kids couldn't go to school, the people who told you you couldn't go into the hospital to see your dying grandma or even have a funeral for her because we had to stop COVID and take all kinds of extreme measures to shut down society are unwilling to say monkeypox is spread 99% through men having sex with men and we need to be careful and maybe you should stop doing that or at least take lots of precautions. It's wild. The self-righteous mass crowd won't tell me to cover up my ding-dong. That is where <laughs> that is where we are at right now, right? Well, the so self- much for the podcast. Yeah. Good night, everybody. <laughs> well, should, I'm being serious because that's over. what this comes down to. If you care about people, you should say. Secondly, the crowd that told me everything you just said about social distancing, can't visit grandma, can't have parties, self-righteously demand these things as an act of personal holiness will say nothing about your sex life. Don't get within six feet, but gosh, if you, what you do in your bedroom, that's between you and your friend. I mean, this is absolute insanity. And of course, this is causing a battle within the left, within itself, because you have more moderate people saying, hey, let's say the truth here. And other people saying, no, no, it doesn't fit the ideology. It doesn't fit what we believe. So we're not going to say any of it. And again, in the book, we tell even more stories about how tribalism is redefining truth in even more extreme ways. Okay, so let me try to summarize our little state of the union here. Tribalism is getting worse. Tribalism is causing a breakdown in discourse. We're calling each other names and we're doing so dishonestly. And it's hijacking our elections at the moment. And maybe even worse than that, it's causing a public health crisis. That is the cost of tribalism over the last year. And like he said, we do talk about this in the book. But one of the funny things about writing a book is that you have to send it to the publisher. And then it's about another year. <laughs> We've learned a lot about the process I didn't know of any of- writing a book, right? Because it's the first time we've ever done anything like this. And you kind of have this idea that you write a book and then it comes out. But it turns out, no, it took 
what, nine to 12 months to really get it edited and go through the whole publisher's process. So there's a lot that has happened that we kind of thought, man, we should have included that, but we couldn't because it was after the deadline. Or just us thinking more about it and say, oh, we've kind of had some new thoughts. We know more now than we did then. Yeah. And so as we're reflecting on tribalism in 2022, we kind of want to end by focusing again on the church, how this is affecting the church, and honestly talking about a topic that I wish, I wish, wish, wish we would have included a chapter on inside of the book. Yeah. And this really hit me when we were reading the book because Patrick and I went to this little studio and read our own book. So if you like the podcast in this kind of format, maybe you like to listen to things, you might like to get the audio book, which you get free if you pre-order it and just give us your information. And when we were reading the book, that's when I started thinking, oh, what about that? Or we should have included this. I think I walked out of that and told you, man, we're going to have to like do a part two or something, you know, because there's so much more we could have included. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. Okay, so we've already painted a picture of tribalism in the last year, and we suggested that the entire nation is taking a thematic apperception test, a Rorschach test. And how we're responding to these headlines says a lot more about our political allegiances than they often say about the facts on the ground, what's actually happening. And this isn't just true across America. It's true inside of the church. You see, it turns out when we look at all the statistics, all the information out there, not just America has become more tribal. Christians have followed suit. We are exactly like our nation. Yeah, the reality is that our politics are shaped less by Jesus's Sermon on the Mount than the sermons that Tucker Carlson gives every night on television. Our ethics are shaped less by the pages of our Bible, the Holy Scriptures, than they are by the pages of the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever newsletter you read. And it shouldn't be that way. Christians should be aware of what's happening in the world, but we should think Christianly, biblically, Christ-centeredly. And why have we gotten away 
away from that? Well, I'm sure there are a lot of causes. I mean, just look at the time people spend in church or reading their Bible versus the time they spend on social media or watching cable news. So we're being discipled by something, that's for sure. We're followers of something. Unfortunately, what we are spending the most time with, the news media, is shaping us more than the Bible. And in a similar way, there's just an increasing number of voices that are now saying that Christians need to be more actively politically engaged. And specifically, it's not about political engagement. We need to be more partisan. I think about a piece that came out from James Wood, and I don't think he was advocating to go be a Republican, but he might have kind of been advocating to go be a Republican on one level where he's saying, look, this third wayism that maybe you and I represent, these critiques of tribalism, it's not going to help people in the long term. We need to work for the common good, which means we do need to pick sides. But you can juxtapose that with an article I read by a guy named Adam Joyce, who's a professor who does the exact opposite. He has the same critique. We need to be politically engaged. We need to be partisan. But he's coming from the left and saying, hey, Christians, you need to hit your wagon over here. And so maybe that's part of the reason why we've become more partisan. There's just more voices calling and saying, hey, you need to do this. So when you talk about third way, I think you're referring to a middle way, a different way between the hard right and the hard left, between the Republican and the Democrat. But there's got to be a third way where Christians can enter into the the cultural dialogue, the political dialogue that brings our Christian ethics with it, but puts us at odds with the prevailing political parties. And some people on the right and left, Christians, don't like that. They think, no, in this world, if you're really going to pursue a just world, a fair world, a right world, that you have to identify with one of these parties. Absolutely. And I want to be really clear. Third wayism, which has now kind of become a dunk, an insult. You mean that people criticize you because you claim to be on this third way? Well, they would describe me as third way, and now I'm just kind of saying, okay, whatever. And what are they, why are they dunking? It. I don't get it. Is that squishy? Does that mean you're squishy? Yeah, I think it's that you're squishy, that you're maybe pietistic, that you only care about spiritual concerns, that you won't take any strong stands. If it's coming from the left, it's you're affluent, and you don't have to worry about these things, so you can kind of be aloof to it all. And all of that is a huge misunderstanding, I think, of where we stand. We are not advocating for some sort of centrism, <laughs> right? Like, hey, let's find the middle point on every policy issue and say that's the right way. That's not it at all all. What I think third wayism is saying is, look, I will not let a political party set my political agenda. I will not let a political party with its package deal ethics determine for me what I think is right and wrong on every single issue. Instead, I'm going to try as much as I can to come to every issue and say, what does Jesus say about this? How does the Bible shape my thinking on this? I'm not going to let the tribes influence my thinking. And so I might be really far left on some things and really far right on other things, and I might be centrist on other things. The point is, the people who are determining how I think are not the tribalists. And that's why people like us consider ourselves politically homeless. It's because if you have a heterodox set of beliefs that make you right on some things and left on other things, there's not a political party that it's easy for you to identify with. Nobody really wants to accept you because you've got to kind of buy the whole package or you're considered outsider, a squishy, a rhino. Which, by the way, I have to say that's ironic because I guess I'm saying nice things about myself. I think it takes far <laughs> more courage to resist tribalism and to take the slings and arrows of both sides. It takes far more courage to do that than it does to bunker down in your little trench on your little side and shoot at the other side and feel great about yourself. Well, because courage has been redefined or I think misunderstood. And it's not courageous to yell bad things at the other side and have your tribe applaud you for that. What's courageous 
is saying to your own people, people who think like you, people you would like their respect, people that you're in relationship with, hey guys, I think you've got some things wrong here. That's real courage. If your tribe is applauding you, you haven't done anything courageous. That's kind of a key indicator. <laughs> courage. Do you remember that? Uh, was that the Wizard of Oz? Anyways, let's keep going. Let's hop back to our main question here. We were asking, why are Christians no different than the rest of America? As America is becoming more partisan, why are Christians simultaneously becoming more partisan? Shouldn't we be different than the rest of the world? Isn't that part of what it means fundamentally to be a Christian? And while there are lots of different answers and they're probably all valid, one that I have not really seen discussed anywhere, but I think plays a major role in it, is the seeker-sensitive movement. So the seeker-sensitive movement refers to a really popular influential movement in the church in the 80s all the way up through 2000. Probably the most important popular movement of the last few decades. If you want to think of a church that kind of expresses the seeker-sensitive movement in its fullest form, think Willow Creek Community Church under Bill Hybels. Its philosophy was to make its Sunday worship service appealing and attractive to the person who was completely unchurched. And the way they did that is by taking out the Bible, taking out worship music, taking out anything that was too much God, too much Christianity, too much Jesus, too much sacrifice, too much of the cross, because they didn't want to offend people. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be cynical here. I think they saw a problem, again, in the late 80s, early 90s, which is that there was lots of people who weren't in churches. That was the goal. I want to reach unchurched people, and I simply will not condemn that heart. I think the heart was really right. But what they saw amongst these people, especially affluent people, is that they would have said, hey, my life's pretty good. I've got it all together. I don't really need church. And so the question became, how do we create a church service and a church environment that feels relevant to people who don't feel like they have any problems? How do you create a church service that's appealing and comprehensible to people who have almost no church background? And so like Keith said, that changed the sermons. The sermons oftentimes became more topical. They became more therapeutic. You know, how do you battle anxiety? How do you become an expert parent? Those kinds of things. They changed the kids programming. And one of the main goals of these churches was just to grow, to get as big as possible. Again, with the heart of, we want to reach as many people as possible. And I won't condemn that heart. That's the right heart. But the strategy that they developed was kind of a thinned out version of Christianity and Christian discipleship for the sake of drawing in people who were skeptical or at least disinterested in the church. Yeah. And of course, those churches had a plan of how people would go through their church and eventually oh, yeah. get to the meteor parts of the Bible, the parts that called for sacrifice, parts that called us to bring our whole life under the Lordship of Christ. But the reality is that a lot of people never made it through their kind of funnel to ever get to that spot. They thought of themselves as Christians, but they didn't know what Jesus thought about sexuality or injustice or racial reconciliation. They didn't know what Jesus thought about that because the church had, in an effort to win people to Jesus and not have them be turned off by more difficult issues, just never talked about that. Yeah, I mean, just think about it for a second. If you want to have a church that's as appealing as possible to as many people as possible, and you know that you're going to have people coming from different political perspectives, different ideologies, what you have to do if you want to be appealing and welcome those people in is you have to minimize offense. 
that becomes a primary goal. But if you start talking about political topics, ethical topics, you're going to offend people. They'll leave. Your church won't be big and you will have lost them. And so as a result, they saw cultural and political and ethical issues as barriers to the gospel rather than a part of the gospel. Yeah, they reduced the gospel down to a transaction that people made with God about their sin. Like you would just pray this prayer and then you would be across the finish line. You would be now a Christian because you asked Jesus in your heart. Now, if you go back and just read the Gospels, how many times do you find that Jesus talked about being a Christian? Well, guess what? None. Jesus never used the word Christian. What he used is the word disciple. And a disciple means a learner or a follower. And when Jesus talked to people, he invited them to follow him. Just over and over in the Gospels, you just see it repeatedly where Jesus says, hey, follow me. That's what a Christian is, someone who has given their allegiance to Jesus and is following him. And of course, they're trusting him for their sin. Of course, they're trusting him for their eternal life, but they're also trusting him for their everyday life. Like They just have this trust relationship with Jesus where they're learning to follow and obey him and give him their allegiance. But if you stop talking about the gospel that way, and if you reduce it down to asking Jesus into your heart so that you can be forgiven to your sin and going to heaven someday, then what happens is someone else is going to come along and ask for people's allegiance. Someone (laughs) else is going to come along and say, follow me. And people are going to listen to that invitation. And so you know who said that? Who invited them into that kind of relationship was the donkey and the elephant. They came along and said, follow me. I've got an agenda for your life. And with the absence of a greater allegiance to Jesus, Christians began following the donkey and the elephant. Yeah. I mean, look, nature abhors a vacuum. Nature will always fill the vacuum. And the human mind is the exact same way. When we individualized the gospel and made it so that Christian concerns were really just about your personal individual life, not about broad, big, public concerns, we created a vacuum. We didn't mean to create the vacuum. I don't think anyone intended it. Said, hey, let's create a vacuum. I don't think anyone said, hey, let's go ahead and just escort Jesus's teachings on ethics, justice, economics, and sexuality. Let's just take those to a secure location, right? Like no one said that, but that's exactly what happened. And nature abhors a vacuum. The human mind abhors a vacuum. And so cable news, the internet and social media came in and filled the vacuum. And so now all of a sudden you had these Christians who had a very individualistic faith. They were personally saved by Jesus. They could tell you their communication strategies and how they battle anxiety and how they're great parents, but they could not tell you anything about what Jesus has to say about these big public, political, cultural, ethical issues. And what they did tell you, you quickly came to discover, was a reflection of the pundits they followed, not the savior that they followed. So then, having given their allegiance to the donkey or the elephant, they figured out, each side figured out how to make Jesus affirm their political positions. And He's like a mascot. Yeah, Jesus became their mascot. And so we keep moving through time. As a nation, we are becoming increasingly tribalized. As a nation, we are becoming more partisan. And because we have people whose politics are being discipled by the nation, (laughs) by their pundits, it's no shock that they're also becoming partisan simultaneously. And blame for this sits at the church's feet. We didn't talk about it. We let other people talk about it, and it's no shocker. And so once you get to 2016 and then 2020, and things are increasing in all these stages, we as pastors increasingly began to have people on both sides of the aisle demand that our church start talking more and more about political issues. But what we discovered was that they didn't really want the Jesus take on things. They weren't saying, hey, what's the Sermon on the Mount? say about this. What they wanted was for us
just to parrot their favorite pundit. One of the best examples of this, which I think we've shared before on the podcast, was uh, when George Floyd was murdered. The Sunday after that, we had messages come in from people on the left saying, hey, if you don't address this in the service, we're going to leave the church. Now, at the time, we'd planned on saying something. We planned on grieving what had happened. But then after we said something in the service, what do you guess happened? <laughs> Team Wright starts sending us emails and saying how offended we are. Are you saying that you want to defund the police, that you're anti-police? And of course, that's also not what we were saying in it. But in both cases, they didn't really care about what Jesus had to say about the issue. That wasn't the concern. The concern was that we took the right cultural political stance that fit their particular perspective. And I think the pastors being under siege about these issues is one reason that you're seeing polls say that a lot of pastors either have left ministry or want to leave ministry Huge if they amounts. had the opportunity. And I think it's because pastors are under siege and these are the issues they're forced to deal with and they keep getting fire from the right and the left. That's one reason the polls show that a lot of pastors are either leaving the ministry or are trying to leave the ministry if they just had a right opportunity. Opportunity. They're absolutely exhausted. It's not why they got into ministry. And I am sympathetic. It's not our situation. We're in a much better situation than that. But if I were in the situation they find themselves, I'd probably be thinking the same thing. Yeah. You know, pastors really have one of three options in these situations. Number one, you just stay the course. In other words, you bunker down, you avoid politics, you keep Jesus's ethics off in the safe and secure location. You try to keep your seeker sensitive inoffensiveness and hope that you can weather the storm. The problem is that churches that are doing this, even huge mega churches that are doing this, it's not working. They are losing people like crazy. And so if your goal is to get more people, this is not working for you. Yeah. People right now are just demanding that the church say something on these issues. And if you're not willing to say anything, then whether it's for good reasons or not, people just stop showing up. They're going to find a place that will talk about these issues. I think there's another option, and this would obviously be the option that I would opt for personally, which is that you need to speak into the vacuum. The time has come that the church needs to disciple people's politics. The time has come that the church needs to give them a theology of the common good, not according to some partisan handbook or platform, but according to Jesus. Now, again, if your goal is church growth, I'm not telling you this is a great strategy, <laughs> right? But that shouldn't be the goal. The goal should not be church growth. The goal should not be inoffensiveness. The goal should be faithfulness to Jesus. And because Jesus had things to say about this, maybe that's our best path forward. Well, and the reason it's not a good church growth strategy is because a lot of people, not all, but a lot of people don't really care what Jesus says unless you tell them that Jesus agrees with their favorite cable news host. <laughs> unless yeah. Jesus parrots what those people they already in their tribe believe, then they don't really want to hear that. So this is the most dangerous option because it causes you to call people to put their allegiance to Jesus ahead of their tribe. And some people are open to that, others not so much. So you might get people who leave and go to, which is this is the third option, churches that have kind of caved in and have accepted that they're going to be liberal or conservative. I don't mean theologically, I mean culturally and politically. That's exactly right. If option number one is bunker down, stay inoffensive. If option number two is let's disciple people in their political theology and their sense of common good. Option number three is just get captured by a political ideology and become a 
court profit for your particular tribe. And the good thing about this, if you want to go down this road, and I think it's really destructive to the church, so I think it's horrible for people, but the really good thing is that it can grow the heck out of your church. This it is, is a newest. church growth strategy. <laughs> That's exactly right. So the irony here is most of the people on either the left or the right would say that they hate the seeker-sensitive movement, but they're really carrying the torch, at least the growth torch of the seeker-sensitive movement forward. Because if you want to grow a church, just get radically political. Add some five to 10 minute political rants inside of your sermons. Tweet about things that people in your party and tribe care about and want to hear you talk about. So let me give you a couple examples on the right, and then you do a couple examples on the left, Patrick. So I read about a guy named Bill Bolin in the Atlantic, and he was a pastor of a church called Floodgate, and this is in the suburbs of Detroit. And his church was small, and it always kind of struggled. It was running around 100 people until uh, Bill Bolin took option number three and went all in for Trump. And he has a little riff in the middle of the service, like 10 to 15 minutes, where he just talks politics from a very hard right angle, very pro-Trump conspiracy theory angle. And guess what? Floodgate went from running around 100 for a number of years to running over 1,500 people. Now that's church growth. I don't know if it's the kind of growth that pleases God. I don't know if it's the kind of growth that conforms people to be more like Jesus and that sends people out in the community to make them ambassadors of Jesus's love and embraces the Sermon on the Mount, but it definitely will get you a big crowd. We've talked in the past about Greg Locke, the preacher in Tennessee, whose church blew up in COVID. And it's partly because he was ranting against COVID vaccines and kind of conspiracy theories. We had him on the podcast. You can go back and listen to it if you want. There's a lot has developed since then. So I'm not sure it'd be the same kind of interview if we had a chance to talk to him again. But he's CNN's kind of Christian nationalist favorite pastor, and he puts on a show. But it's a show that I'm not sure will end up making you more like Jesus. Okay, so if you want to grow a local church, you want a local church growth strategy, go right. Now, if you want an online church growth strategy, oh, go left. Oh, really? We're really helping some people out here, right? <laughs> uh, and that's exactly what's happening. The problem is, obviously, most white evangelical churches are going to lean conservative. So no shocker that if you take the conservative route, you're going to be able to grow a decent-sized local church. But there are a lot of people online right now who have left behind evangelicalism, who are moving very far left into progressive circles, and they're still looking for some form of Christian community. They know they're not going to find it in their actual community, and so they're finding it online. And we're seeing this happen in multiple places. There's one online movement called The Liturgist. It's been around for a long time. It started as a podcast. But since then, they have moved over the years increasingly, increasingly, increasingly to basically as far left as you can possibly go on everything. But what's interesting is that they have regular Sunday gatherings. They call it the Sunday thing, where people get together and they give these kind of sermons about Jesus. He's kind of like been baptized into the waters of wokeness and resurrected into intersectional glory. <laughs> That's too good. Now, this is all online. These communities. Communities are digital. <laughs> They're all digital. I've sat in on some of these things just to see what they were like. And, you know, I didn't really participate, I guess. You didn't have to participate, you know, safe spaces and whatever. But anyways, <laughs> but it's a huge online community with a massive Patreon following. So here's the thing. There is a lot of money involved here. These organizations have been able to raise tremendous amounts of money for themselves. So, I mean, there's also a financial incentive. There's another group called the New Evangelicals. I'm actually going to go into their podcast to talk to the host, which I think will be an interesting conversation. I told them, look, you and I really don't 
don't agree on much, but let's have a conversation. And he bit. So, you know, kudos to him. But the exact same thing. They have regular online gatherings. It's very much so an online community. And he's been able to amass in a very short time a massive following of people. And so, look, if you want to grow a church in person or online, the third option is the best way to go. But like Keith said, I'm not sure if you're being faithful to Jesus. I'm not sure if you haven't just become a court prophet who's saying exactly what your party, your great leaders want you to say. And so what you have is what some people have called kind of a horseshoe effect, where you have the right and the left mirroring each other's strategies, both of them seeing growth. But the way down the middle, that's the hard way. I think we're calling it Jesus's way. And it's a way that's really unpopular. I mean, maybe we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus said there'd be few people who found the narrow road. And maybe that applies to this conversation as well. People who love Jesus, who want to put him first in their life, who want to approach their politics, not as Republicans or Democrats, but first as Christians, and who then may embrace either political party, but not without some hesitation and reservation, because we all know that each party has some things that we can agree with and some things that we'd have to push back on. But that's what our world needs. And that's, I think, why we wrote the book, right? To help people put truth over tribe. You could be a Democrat, you can be a Republican, you can identify as neither or with some other party, that's fine. That's not our objective is to try to convince people that you can't be a part of a political party. Our objective is to say, let's first be Christians. Let's first follow the Sermon on the Mount. Let's first realize that our citizenship is in heaven and then it is here on earth. And yes, let's pursue justice because God's kingdom is a just kingdom and we as Christians should care a lot about justice. But let's do it in a way that reflects well on our king. I love what you're saying because you're saying, look, Whatever party you want to be in, I get it. That's fine. That's not our prerogative. What we're trying to say is that maybe now is the time that the small group of Christians who are willing to say, I'm not going to bunker down because I do love my neighbor. And I do think that political public matters matter for my neighbor's welfare. And I do think Jesus and God care about that. I can't go down that route. But on the other side, I can't go down this tribal route, this partisan route. For the few of us who are, like you said, walking down the middle, we have to go back to the basics. We have to go back to the foundation of our faith, which is, of course, the Bible. I think that the path forward is a reclamation of a theology for the common good. We need to have a vision of what's the good life together look like. And we need to make sure that that vision is shaped by God's law, is shaped by what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think that this has to be done not in the spirit of the world, which is what we're seeing with these, you know, radical partisan people, where it's a spirit of anger and outrage and name calling and all those awful things. It should be done in a spirit of self-sacrificial love. We should follow our king. Our politic, we might have strong ideas, but we must carry it out in a way that honors him and the way that he carried it out. They will know you are my disciples by your snarky tweets. No, that's not it. They will know you are my disciples by your voting record. Well, no, that that's not it. They'll know you are my disciples by your love for one another your love for the other side, your love for people who are like you and those who are not. That is our testimony. Let's don't lose that to win an election. (laughs) Let's don't trade in something of such great value for something that is so fleeting and so temporary. Let's don't trade in that we give our allegiance to the King of Kings so that we can try to get a president elected. It's such a foolish trade. Let's don't make it. 
Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you would just take a few moments to click the link in the show notes to join our book launch team, it would be not just a huge favor to us, but I think a huge favor to the church. Let's work together to make the church a place that worships Jesus. So click that link, take the few minutes it takes to just put in a little bit of your information and join our team. 